These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Today we are going to continue the Epic of Gilgamesh with the battle against the Bull of Heaven and the journey to Utnapishtim. This is the most epic part of the epic, the way we normally use the term, with both action and adventure motivated by high emotions. As we begin, Gilgamesh is riding high, leaping from one success to another, and enjoying all there is to want in life. And it will all come crashing down when he says some indelicate things to a beautiful woman, and from there he will learn the truth of life and death. But before all that, our story begins at the height of his power. Gilgamesh is in his palace, a massive and luxurious building, currently sitting in his bejeweled and gilded bathroom. And yet for all the statues and precious metals and finery, the most beautiful thing in that room was the wet and naked form of the bathing king of Uruk. Nine foot tall and two-thirds divine, his abs were as solid as the high walls of Uruk. His arms and legs were powerful and dexterous. His face and body were perfectly formed without a single imperfection, and his beard was like a god itself. As he rose from the large, steaming bath, water flowing down his smooth, golden skin, he shook his full and majestic locks of hair, and Ishtar, goddess of love, who was secretly spying on him during his bath, became wet. As Gilgamesh put his fine clothes back on, the goddess of love and fertility, whose high priestesses were courtesans and whose temples held blessed feast day orgies, stepped from her hiding spot with desire in her eyes. Come to me, Gilgamesh, she said. Be my husband and I will be your wife. So great is my love for you that I have prepared many gifts a chariot of lapis lazuli, gold and amber, drawn by storm demons. When you enter our temple, the high priestesses will offer themselves to you, and all the kings of the world will kneel at your feet. The goats in your field will all bear triplets, and your sheep will all bear twins. Your oxen and your horses will breed strong and true. Gilgamesh sighed at the most beautiful of goddesses, saying, Ah! You would give me all these things, but what would I be giving you if we were married? Would you bankrupt my kingdom with your fine perfumes and clothing? How much would it cost to feed a woman used to the bread and wine of the gods? What exactly would I be getting out of our arrangement? No, I know all about you, dear Ishtar. You are a fire that goes out in the cold, a door that lets the wind in, tar that blackens the hands of workmen, and a weak limestone foundation that undermines a wall. You are the sandal that causes the wearer to trip and fall. Who of your husbands did you faithfully love for all time? Should we count them? I think we should count them. First up, was Dumasid, who you raised from mortal to divine and then sent him to his doom in the netherworld. Then there was the beautiful Rollerbird, who you loved until you beat him and broke his wing and now he sits in the trees and can't fly. Then you loved the lion, but dug a pit and trapped him in it. Then there was the noble Stallion, who you loved so much that you fixed him with the bit and bridle and he can no longer run free and his mother weeps daily. 
Then you loved the shepherd who daily gave you bread and meat from his own flock until you turned him into a wolf, and now even the other shepherds chase him away and his own dogs snap at him. Oh, and you know who else you loved? You loved Ishilinu, but he knew better. He called you out. He said it would be inappropriate and dangerous to be involved with you, and so you turned him into a frog and trapped him in his own date grove. And so now you would have me be what? Another cautionary tale for future generations? Hard pass, please. This did not please Ishtar. This did not please Ishtar at all. She was the goddess of love, but she was also the goddess of war. She flew up to heaven and went all the way to the supreme god of creation, her father An, lord of heaven. And she said, Father, Gilgamesh is terrible. He's spreading all kinds of slander about me, calling me a dangerous, loose woman. And ancient An looked over his glasses at his daughter and said, Well, it is all true, isn't it? And she screamed in frustration and said, Father, that is not the point. He said mean things. Give me the bull of heaven so that I can break his smug face and teach him a lesson. The highest God shook his head and said, If we unleash the bull of heaven on the world, it will drink the Euphrates River dry and trample all the fields in Kulaba. There will be famine and drought in our favorite city for seven years. I will handle that part, father, insisted Ishtar, and her father, who can apparently refuse her nothing, hands over the leash. On Lord of Gods, first entity in existence, master of the heavens and formless void, father of the gods and creator of the earth, is powerless against his daughter's temper tantrums. As soon as Ishtar gets her hands on the bull, she tosses it smack in the middle of Urk. Immediately, it chews through a few bystanders and makes its way to the Euphrates River and in a single slurp drains it so dry that the reeds in the fields outside of town have the water sucked out by the roots. Instant desert. Already, people are panicking and running around and getting chomped by huge teeth and gored by the massive horns. The bull snorts and in front of it, a huge crack in the ground shoots out, blasting through the market of Uruk. 300 people fall to their deaths. Well, only 299, because Enkidu happened to be shopping at the time, and even caught by surprise as lightning-fast ninja reflexes allowed him to catch the ledge and do a leaping triple backflip to face the monster. The bull sets its legs, and Enkidu sets his legs, and at the same instant, both charged. Enkidu catches the bull by the horns square in the middle of the charge. Both wrestled, their strength equal, until the bull used its tail to flick dung in Enkidu's eyes and spit acid saliva to boil the skin off his chest. Finding himself at a disadvantage, he leapt over a building in a single bound to make a tactical retreat. Gilgamesh heard the commotion in the palace and in a flash made it down to the market. He met the retreating Enkidu, who quickly explained that he had figured out a plan. He just needed someone reliable to back him. Gilgamesh was reliable, so the two of them followed the sounds of screaming and devastation until they saw the massive bull rampaging through the streets of Uruk. The plan was simple and cleanly executed. 
Gilgamesh stepped out in front to take the beast's attention while Enkidu snuck behind, grabbing the tail and using his leverage as he kicked the knee out of the bull's back legs that Enkidu managed to immobilize it. In a single clean stroke, Gilgamesh pierced his sword through the roaring mouth and into the brain, ending the fearsome weapon of the gods painlessly. The two heroes felt an urge to celebrate, and at the same time an urge to rest. They fought those desires and instead butchered the bull right where it lay and offered the parts in sacrifice to all the gods. Only after the pieties had been completed did they relax, sitting side by side as brothers. And as they did, from up on top of the massive temple palace complex of Ishtar, the goddess herself emerged looking distraught and haggard. From her high balcony, she looked down at the scene of carnage with the two heroes resting amid the broken bodies and cattle viscera. And she swore at Gilgamesh. She cursed loudly and vilely, hating the man who scorned her and then had the balls to defeat her bull of heaven. Enkidu was mighty sick of it. And so he chopped the butt off the bull and threw it hitting the goddess square in the face with cattle butt. And then she went back inside to gather her high priestesses and temple prostitutes to give a funeral lament for the bull and to cast a dark magic ritual. But Gilgamesh was already past Ishtar and her vengeance games. Gilgamesh took the bull's huge horns and ordered them gilded and placed above his throne. Then he and Enkidu, all dressed up now, went arm in arm down to the markets and loudly proclaimed their pickup lines to the wenches. Who is the most victorious man? Oh, who is the most glorious of warriors? And the girls in the market all fawned over them, sexy hunks of man meat that they were on the best of days and now resplendent in the glory of a big victory. And so they picked the most attractive of the girls and took them back to the palace and held a massive feast for the entire afternoon and then late into the night. Once the pair had passed out from partying, Ishtar called a council of the gods in the heavens and presented her case like a trial. The case was straightforward. Gilgamesh and Enkidu had severely disrupted the order of nature by killing Humbaba back two episodes ago and now disrupted the order of heaven by slaying the bull of heaven. Gods had various sympathies, either for or against the city of Uruk and its champion king, but none could dispute that a severe violation had occurred. The god Enlil, one of the most senior gods, made the judgment that one should die, and since Gilgamesh had more divine favor, it would be Enkidu who perished. Shamash the son, grandfather of Gilgamesh and special patron deity of Uruk, complained at this saying he had given the two heroes divine sanction to act as they had, and so they were innocent. And for this, Shamash was castigated, the other gods saying basically, yes, it is your fault. You were palling around with mortals and interfering far too much in lesser affairs, and so you can consider the death of one of your champions to be punishment to you as well. With this, the council of gods was concluded, and Enkidu fell ill. Just a quick note on versions here, I have seen in some secondary tellings that it was Jealous Ishtar who poisoned Enkidu, or that he was suffering from post-battle wounds, but as far as I could tell, 
Enkidu's illness is just directly sent from the gods as a punishment for making too many waves, upsetting the natural order. In any case, Enkidu spends a long time suffering from severe illness and speaks with Gilgamesh and the gods about how very upset he is over his suffering and his impending death. It's a very long, poetic, very philosophical section that is ultimately tangential. After lashing out at circumstance and the people around him, he's eventually convinced that it is no good to go around blaming people and decides that all he can do is live well and wish the best for everyone. He reconciles with death in general, but laments at the very end that while death may be inevitable, Enkidu wished he had been able to die in battle instead of in bed from an illness. And with his passing, Gilgamesh loses it completely. He goes deep into mourning and demands that the whole world join him. He commissions a massive statue of his friend out of the most lavish gold and gems. He doesn't even want to bury the body until finally a maggot crawled out of its nose while Gilgamesh sat weeping over the corpse, no longer able to ignore it. He gave his friend the finest of state funerals and was buried with every luxury anyone would ever want in the afterlife. And then, once there was no more ritual to guide him through the darkness of grief, Gilgamesh lost himself. He left the city and headed west into the deep wilds. He stopped grooming himself, and his glorious hair became a tangled, matted mess, and his clothes began to fall apart. As he roamed the wild hills, his grief transformed into something more existential. He despaired that he too would die, and one day, as he climbed a hill, he saw a pride of lions frolicking in the sun and enjoying life. And their happiness so enraged Gilgamesh that he butchered them all and wore their skins for clothes. He feared nothing in the world, but feared that still death would claim him one day, and eventually remembered the tales of a man named Utnapishtim, who lived at the far end of the world. That man was an immortal and would know the secrets of immortality. And so Gilgamesh began to journey to meet the world's oldest man. He walked west until finally reaching the edge of the world, which the Sumerians called Masha, the mountain with two peaks. The Greeks would call it the Pillar of Hercules, and today we call it the Strait of Gibraltar. It was universally agreed by classical and pre-classical civilizations alike that nothing lay west of where the Mediterranean Sea opens up to the Atlantic Ocean. Technically, the the land bends out in both Spain and Africa, so it isn't really the westernmost point of the old world, but they didn't have modern maps, and in any case, the Earth isn't really flat either. There is, in fact, something beyond the Straits of Gibraltar, and so nitpicking really misses the point here. The point is that on top of the two mountains lived a pair of massive scorpion sentries, one male, one female who stood watch over the place where the sun passes below the earth at nighttime. They were suitably impressive, radiating terror and able to kill with a glare. Overcoming the fear that gripped him, he approached the guardians, who recognized him immediately as the one who was two-thirds god, the mortal champion Gilgamesh. They asked why he had come all this way, and he replied that he was journeying to meet Utnapishtim. Scorpion guardians waved him off, saying it's an impossibly difficult road. Even if they were to let him pass and enter the road of the sun, he would need to run the entire length 
and make it out on the other side of the world in only 12 hours, because the tunnel is just large enough to fit Shamash the sun, and if anyone is caught in the tunnel during his passage, they will surely die. Gilgamesh pleaded with them, and the female scorpion saw his desperation to reach the end of the journey, so they led him through. Crossing between the two mountains, Gilgamesh entered a tunnel that went beneath the earth. It was, of course, completely dark since the sun had just risen in the east and the countdown had begun. Darkness was total in that cavern, oppressive, cold, and silent, and Gilgamesh ran without any external indicator to tell him if he was making good time or not. He sprinted at full speed, knowing that no one had ever made the journey faster than the sun did. But after a few hours, darkness and exhaustion sapped his life away. Still, he found the strength to keep running through that darkness, thanking the gods that at least it was straight and not a maze. At eight hours, the pain of exertion was almost overwhelming, and he screamed in the dead, silent tunnel, but still didn't stop. At nine hours, when he thought it couldn't get any worse, a headwind began to push against him, making his run even more labored. He held out hope that this meant he was near the end, but still the end didn't come. Then the eleventh hour came, and he still had not reached the end, and he saw something even more frightening than the darkness. From behind him was the warm orange heat and glow of Shamash the sun, settling down to the horizon for the night. Gilgamesh had no way of knowing how far along the path he was. All he could do was push his legs, already burning with exhaustion, and his lungs already flecked with blood from overuse. His grandfather, the unforgiving burning ball of heat, finally entered the tunnel, flame and light blasting through the place under the earth. And only moments before the twelfth hour, Gilgamesh leapt from the exit that appeared suddenly, his back licked by flames of the sun's passage. And Gilgamesh saw his grandfather Shamash in all his glory as he passed from the road of the sun to illuminate the next day. And when his eyes adjusted from the dark to the brilliance of the new day, he looked around and saw that he was in a garden. The exit point for the road of the sun was, of course, the Garden of the Gods, secreted in the eastern mountains with fruits of all kinds, said by some cultures to have been the initial cradle of mankind. And Shamash the sun looked down at Gilgamesh, realizing that he had almost crashed into his beloved grandson along the road of the sun, and asked, why would he risk his life for such a foolish thing as immortality? And Gilgamesh replied that he would not sit and rest in life only to then sit and rest in death. He would rather drown in the sun for a brief moment in life, since none who are dead can ever see the sun again. Then Gilgamesh left the garden, walked down to the shores of the eastern ocean, and came upon a small winemaking house. Siduri, god of winemaking, saw him first and feared that this lion-cloaked man, burnt, haggard, starving, exhausted, some sort of bandit. She fled into her house and bolted the door, but Gilgamesh saw her run and banged on the door, demanding that she open up or he would burst the door into splinters. She demanded to know who he was when he announced that he was Gilgamesh, slayer of beasts, king of Uruk, and two-thirds divine. She was skeptical. After all, surely Gilgamesh, whose fame had already reached the eastern ocean, would not be so ragged and run down. But 
Gilgamesh explained his grief from the loss of Enkidu and his own trials since then, and she let him in. He asked if she knew how to get to Utnapishtim, since he was seeking the secret of eternal life. She explained that what he sought was impossible for mortal men, but if he was so determined, he would have to pass through the ocean of death. That could not be crossed without Urshanabi, the ferryman who lived in the forest. Gilgamesh thanked her for her directions and went promptly into the forest. Now, presumably he eats at some point, either at Suduri's house or while in the forest, because in short order he comes upon the camp of the ferrymen, surrounded by the men of stone, the only beings who are unharmed by the waters of death. This was a battle that would challenge even the greatest of warriors, and so Gilgamesh blends into the forest and bides his time until he has a clean opportunity and drops on the ferryman like an arrow, stunning the ferryman with a surprise blow from the flat of his axe. Gilgamesh quickly twisted his arm and pushed him down to the ground, pinning him. The stone men panicked at the sudden loss of their master, and in the confusion, Gilgamesh was able to shatter the lot of them and toss the stone pieces into the waters of death, never again to be retrieved and reconstructed. Urshanabi the ferryman got slowly to his feet, and asked who it was that had attacked him. Gilgamesh named himself and his many titles before brusquely demanding of the ferryman take him to Utnapishtim. The ferryman takes the entire affair with surprising stoicism and asks Gilgamesh why he wanted to go on such a dangerous journey, only to hear the by now very well-practiced speech explaining his grief over his friend's death and his desire for immortality. The ferryman is unimpressed, but says... Even if the journey wasn't too dangerous, and even if I wanted to take you, you destroyed the best way to cross when you shattered the men of stone and threw their bodies in the waters of death. They were waterproof, though clearly not axe-proof, and were able to carry us over the water unharmed. If you still want to cross, you are going to need to build me a new boat, and I want a big one to compensate me properly. Build me a boat and construct 300 30-meter-long oars. And so, some time later, Gilgamesh returned to the boat with 300 oars. They carefully loaded the boat with oars and set it into the water, at which point the ferryman says, Look, I will navigate for you, but there is no way I am touching that water, and frankly, neither should you. Take one stroke with the first oar, then throw it away. If you get even one drop on you, then you will die immediately. So Gilgamesh did as instructed, stroking powerfully and then abandoning the oar. And after 300, they still weren't at their destination. I don't know, the stone men usually handle that part, complained the ferryman. It isn't like we normally go through this ridiculous number of oars in a single trip. In any case, that was all the boat could hold, so you're either going to need to be clever or we're going to be stuck adrift here on the ocean of death. Gilgamesh removed his shirt to reveal a worn and starved body, still strong and well-proportioned, but sunken and gray compared to what it had been, and held his shirt above his head like a sail to catch the wind. And with the ferryman navigating, they made it all the way to Utnapishtim's island. An old man waited along the shore as they arrived, and Gilgamesh announced himself and asked to see Utnapishtim. The old man replied that he was at Napishtim and wondered where the stone men had gone that usually come to visit, 
and why anyone would have braved the waters of death to see him without them. Gilgamesh doesn't mention the fact that he murdered the men of stone, who Utnapishtim refers to as his people, and instead gives his speech again about how miserable he is and how he thinks finding the secret of immortality will help him. Utnapishtim scoffs, Oh, Gilgamesh, why are you so wretched? Your self-pity is pathetic. You are two-thirds God, the greatest king of the world, favored by the gods themselves, but like a fool who wears a burlap sack when he owns fine silk clothes, you have given up the good in your life to seek a miserable path. It is certainly sad that your friend has passed, but since then, what have you accomplished? You have done nothing but wear your body out and bring your death closer than it was before. If you had stayed home and worked normally, you could have built something enduring like the walls of Uruk while preserving the span of your life. Death comes to all, Gilgamesh. All things are transitory. The gods give life to things, and the gods give them death as well. You need to make peace with that. Gilgamesh hears these words, and he hears the wisdom in them, but he plants his feet and frowns. I know you, old man. You may look like a human, but you are the truly ancient Utnapishtim. You can give all the pretty poetic words about the inevitability of mortality, but you yourself were born a man like me and have somehow achieved immortality. I will have you stop looking down on me and start explaining your secrets. And ancient Utnapishtim sighed and considered... Then looked mighty Gilgamesh in the eye and said, All right, then. This is my story. Who is this mysterious hermit? And what story does he have to tell to Gilgamesh? There's a lot that happened in this chapter, but behind the trappings of a foreign culture, the tale of the scorning of Ishtar is as universal as gender relations, although admittedly one that is not very kind to the female perspective. Still, Love souring, spawning vengeance, and even the bit at the end where Enkidu throws a bull's butt is the sort of petty mud-flinging that would have been well-worn narrative even at the dawn of civilization. One subtlety in the latter part of the story that is important to keep in mind is that while Gilgamesh is definitely all broken up over Enkidu's passing, that distress becomes an excuse for his more self-centered fear of death to take hold. But Nepishtim is absolutely right to call him pathetic by the time he reaches the island. Didn't he battle the Humbaba precisely to overcome the fear of death? But still, the world's mightiest king is consumed by his mortality and is no longer quite the glowing lust muffin that he once was. While he does grieve for his partner, Enkidu's death has become just a cover a fig leaf to hide the fact that he is now dominated by his terror and not at all the man who went into the forest of cedars in full control of himself. But just as this episode we began with our champion at the height of his game, next episode we will begin with him at his nadir. Fortunately, all he will need to do in his weakened state is sit and listen to the old man, at least at first. What secrets will he reveal to Gilgamesh and to us? Join me next time as we witness a secret pact among the gods. We see immortality pass from the world and we learn methods to gain that immortality for ourselves. 
Thank you for listening.